What's up, my miners of intelligence and consciousness? I'm Rick Brooks, and this is Rick's Mind. Today with me, I have guest J.D. Roth, who is the founder of the website Get Rich Slowly. What's going on, J.D.? And how much? Thanks for having me on. Anytime, anytime. So I, I think the best place to start is to, to tell people what this, what is this website? I mean, it's pretty self-explanatory, but also the story uh, behind why you decided to create this. Sure. So, boy, there's so much that goes into it. I'm just trying to figure out where to start. I guess the first thing to know is I grew up in a relatively poor family uh, here in rural Oregon. I grew up in rural Oregon. And, uh, uh, you know, my family didn't have a lot of money, so my parents didn't know how to manage money. And so growing up, um, they weren't able to model good financial behaviors. And I saw the situation that my parents were in, and I knew that I didn't want to grow up and live in a trailer house. I didn't want to grow up and worry about where the next meal was coming from. So I thought my only escape was college. And so I worked hard to get into college, graduated from college without any uh, school debt, but I had the beginning of a credit card habit. This is back, I graduated in 1991. So that's a long time ago. I know that. 30 plus years ago. No, 31. Just had my 30. Yeah. Just had my 30th reunion that was delayed because of COVID. Um, but I, I started with the beginning of credit card debt. And then after I graduated, I just got further and further into debt because I, I didn't know how to manage money. And uh, eventually in 2004, uh, a couple of friends gave me books and they said, JD, we can see you're struggling with money. Here's, uh, here are some books we think you should read. One of those books was Dave Ramsey's Total Money Makeover. And I know that in the uh, modern world, Dave Ramsey, uh, a lot of people don't like him, but uh, he was awesome for me, man. He, he helped me figure out how to get out of debt. Uh, the other book that I read was a book called Your Money or Your Life by Joe Dominguez and Vicki Robin. And it was a fantastic book, uh, first published back in, I don't know, 92, 93, 94, something like that. And it was one of the first books that talked about uh, financial independence, which is it, financial independence is this huge buzzword now, right? It's all about early retirement and having enough money to do what you want. But back then it was a pretty novel concept. So uh, 2004, I'm deep in debt. My then wife and I had just purchased a new house. And, and that was like the straw that uh, broke the camel's back. It was just the mortgage payments and everything. It was just too much. And so I had been blogging on the internet since before blog was even a word. I started blogging in 1997 um, and I decided, you know what, maybe I'll start, start a blog about personal finance. Uh, I thought maybe, you know, it'd be the first personal finance blog on the internet. <laughs> well, I, I didn't, I didn't realize there were already dozens, dozens of blogs about money. And, uh, so I started a site called Get Rich Slowly, getrichslowly.org. And my concept was I wanted to read everything I could about money, share what I learned. Uh, I process my thoughts through writing. I've always been a writer ever since I was a little kid. And so I thought, okay, I'll read everything I can, write about it, and maybe that'll help me get out of debt. Maybe it'll help some other people too. And if I'm lucky, maybe I can make a few extra bucks on the side from this website just, you know, to kind of help pay off my debt. And I started the site on April 15th, 2006. And I was very fortunate that within three years, 
uh, I had built an enormous following with the site um, and it was making big bucks every month. So I was able to sell it and, uh, but I had already paid off my debt at that point. Uh, but selling it allowed me to achieve the financial freedom that I'd always dreamed about. It, so the, the irony is Rick, I had this site called get rich slowly and it allowed me to get rich quickly. <laughs> not anything I had ever planned for, not anything I had ever intended, just pure good luck being in the right place at the right time. And then, so I sold the site in 2009 and then in 2017, uh, I managed to buy the site back uh, for much less than I paid. But uh, so even to this day, 16 years after starting the site, I am writing it, Get Rich Slowly, trying to help people figure out how to manage their money. Wow, that's fantastic. That is fantastic. So what, what made you, why did you decide to buy the site back? Like did, they, did the people that purchased <laughs> it for me, did they just run it to the ground? I wouldn't say they ran it into the ground, but when they bought it for me, um, so one thing to understand is I've always been very nervous and reluctant to do what they call monetize a site. I don't want to pitch credit cards. I got into trouble myself with credit card and credit card debt. So why would I encourage other people to use credit cards? Mm -hmm. uh, now in 2022, being 53 years old, I recognize, okay, credit cards aren't necessarily evil. They're just a tool. They're, they're kind of like a chainsaw. You know, a chainsaw is a powerful tool, but if you use it wrong, you're going to cut off your foot. Yep. Well, credit cards are the same way. And uh, so, but I, I still am reluctant to pitch credit cards to people. The people who bought the site from me, they were not reluctant to pitch credit cards to people. So uh, when they bought the site from me, they were able to turn around and do all sorts of things with the site that generated a lot of revenue. But eventually as time went on, the audience dwindled and uh, the traffic from Google dwindled, I guess. There were few people coming in just naturally and there were few people reading it regularly. So they're like, eh. Plus they decided they wanted, they had bunch of, bought a bunch of websites and they wanted to sell them. And uh, I got wind of it and said, hey, I'd be happy to take it back. So that's what I did. Yeah, and since, since, you, since you got it back, um, have you seen an increase in the traffic heading to the site? I did initially, uh, but honestly, right around the time COVID hit, things started to fall off. So uh, from a purely financial perspective, repurchasing the site was a poor decision mm -hmm. um, because I, I'm not, I'm not going to ever make that money back. Uh, but it's interesting you bring it up because uh, I, I've just come to the realization recently and this goes to something that we were talking about before the start of the show, that uh, I don't want to participate in the modern web. The modern web, I think it's become very, it's becoming increasingly unusable. I think of sites like Google and Amazon that to me, these are examples of sites that once were, they were almost like wonders of the world. You know, you go to Google, search for anything you want, go to Amazon, buy anything you want. But nowadays, if I go to Amazon and search, for example, for a 32-inch TV, Samsung 32-inch TV, I'll go there and I'll search for that, and I get a page of stuff that's not related to what I'm searching for that Amazon's trying to sell me when all I want is a Samsung 32-inch TV. Or if I go to Google and I search for, I, I don't, I can't think of an example, um, although it's happened to me three times in the past week, I'll, I'll search for a term, and it'll give me results that are completely unrelated to the term. And I'm like, man, and often the top results are uh, ads and 
just other ways for Google to make money. And all this is to say, I don't want to be a part of this ecosystem anymore. So I'm in the middle of remodeling the blog. Uh, I've actually got my code over here to the side. I've been working on it and I want to relaunch the blog and make it much more primitive in a way, I guess, Mm -hmm. like it would have been back in 2004, 2005, 2006, when I first started blogging. And I want to, uh, uh, I don't want to have any of the bullshit on the site. I don't want to have ads. I don't want to have tracking. I don't want to have any of that. I just want to provide good information to people. And if people come and read it, fine. If they don't, that's fine too. Yeah, I think that that's that's a that's an interesting thing because when I look at the internet, I kind of see like the big three or four. You've got Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Reddit, and I've. And then I, well, I guess Amazon too, right? To purchase things. And so the big five. And I don't know outside of those websites, like, and and if you're listening to this, like, be honest with yourself, how often are you online and not going to those sites? I think there's a lot of great information, but like, if I'm honest with myself, I, I generally don't go to any other websites. Like that's where I go. If I go, especially Reddit, I'll go there and then maybe I'll bounce around to different links and whatnot. Yeah. But I don't think that, I don't think that any of us really are using the internet to its, its full potential. I think it, it would be hard to build a successful blog and website in today's environment. I, I don't think that it's impossible because I do think that there's a certain segment of the population that's very interested in like, honing in on something without the, all the distractions. But I think that those people are, are fewer and far between, but it's definitely an interesting case study. I mean, we have a website and for all intents and purposes, it does. Okay. We, we drive surprisingly a lot of traffic to it. And sometimes people, um, will end up staying on and, and actually listening to the podcast from the website, which I think is a bit unusual because there's other pla- like, you know, Spotify and Google podcasts, Apple podcasts. But I mean those, but there are people out there and you know, there's, you never know, there could be another resurgence of, of people going that direction. Sure. We're just truly surfing the web. But well, to me, it's interesting. I'm not, the, I know that I am not the only one who is feeling so frustrated with what, with what the internet has become. There's actually a movement among people, uh, generally people who have been around a long time producing content for the web, uh, who are like, hey, I'm over it. I'm going to go back to what it used to be. Oh, excuse me. Uh, I'm going to go back to what it used to be. And uh, I, I see this more and more. It's just a small movement right now, but it's definitely a movement. There's people there who want to create without all the distractions, without all the baggage. And I'm curious to see where it goes. And I also think you're right that the internet in a way has become siloed where there's just certain sites that people rely on for information. Uh, 20 years ago, 25 years ago, when the internet was new, the big companies uh, I'm not even – let's ignore the internet-only companies like Amazon or Google, but the big companies like, say, the New York Times or uh, uh, what have you, like the uh, the big media companies, they treated the internet as a, a sideline, right? It, it wasn't a thing to focus on or uh, for them to participate in. But now it's their primary source of traffic and audience. Mm-hmm. And so what used to be this – 
it wasn't really the Wild West. That's the wrong way to describe it. But it, it used to be this much more egalitarian environment where people like me, people like you, could go on and create content and share it with people. Uh, more and more, we are drowned out because the big people, the, the big boys uh, from out in the real world, in quotes, uh, have come in and they've like, oh, okay, we're going to be on the internet too. And so now all the traffic goes to them just like it used to uh, through traditional media channels. And I, I think that's unfortunate. I do too. I um, think that, I think that's very unfortunate as well, because you're, you're definitely forcing people for better, or for worse, right. Um, into, into silos. You know, you have, mm-hmm. the benefit is you have someone. <laughs> Yeah, maybe it's not a benefit. <laughs> uh, you have people on TikTok that get millions of followers for shaking their ass or doing some stupid dance. Um, whereas, I mean, TikTok is uh, it's not a good thing because it's a it's a Chinese uh, app, and in China, the thing that's promoted the most is like uh, allegedly. Who knows if this is true? John, pull that up. Um, I think it's like math and science and people doing an engineering concepts or what are really like. That's what the algorithm is looking for. And then in America, it's like stupid dances, right? So that's not that's not necessarily good. It's kind of uh, – so if, if you want – Wait, wait. Up, you're saying that on TikTok in China – when people use TikTok in China, they're not looking for stupid dances? No, they're not. Is that what you're saying? No, they're, they're not. They're definitely not. That's amazing. It's a great – it is a – and John, make sure that I'm not talking about my ass on this. But um, it, <laughs> it, is, it is my understanding that that – like the algorithm that, that like pushes videos and stuff is really looking – Looking for things that are showing STEM STEM items, like that is what they want yeah. their youth to be focused on. Not so much uh, the playthings, which is uh, which is kind of scary, you know. Uh, in in essence, you know, you're you're sowing yeah. mindlessness over here while your populace is, you know, getting expired oh, and stuff. Th- this go- this goes down a rabbit hole that I've I've thought about, but I. Oh, let's go there. I'm not a conspiracy let's, theorist. Oh, but, but I am. So, dude, hit me with it. <laughs> Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Uh, uh, I, I wasn't thinking just in relation to TikTok. Uh, uh, again, I'm old. So, TikTok, you get to anybody over 50, we're all like, TikTok, man, what is this? This is some weird stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, But at the same time, it has that egalitarian nature that the early internet had. John, what were you going to say? About you, you had your um, yeah. I, I don't know where you're getting your information about Chinese. So the Chinese sister app for TikTok is called Douyin mm-hmm. or Douyin, uh, and the top videos are all exactly what you would expect, like you know, cosplaying and dancing and <laughs> entertainment. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, I was wrong there, folks. That's why John's here. Damn it. All right. Well, I'm sorry to lie to you. <laughs> I want to hire John because I need a personal <laughs> fact checker to go around and catch my bullshit. Yeah, I talk, I talk out of my ass. That's why he's here. I don't want to lie to the good people. But anyways, I'm sorry. So you were talking about uh, TikTok being an egalitarian uh, system. Yes. So in, in many ways, TikTok feels egalitarian, just like the early web did or the early podcasts or early whatever. Whenever the, a new technology comes around, the first people on it um, – they get to run with it for a couple of years and have fun with it until the big companies come on. And I guarantee you, if it hasn't already, it's going to happen where you've got your uh, Procter and Gamble coming on TikTok. And well, I know they're just going to sponsor the big uh, yeah. uh, 
influencers. That's probably the easiest way for them to do it. But they're also going to form their own channels and they're uh, and they'll become big and then eventually give it five years. That's where people will go. Yeah, it, it, it's a it's it's it, a, it's frustrating to me that it's natural. I, I would I would agree with you. I, but when when you know when we talk about these things, I'm always wondering like what is the next social media? Like what else is out there that I don't know about that I need to be on? Cause there's definitely that. We had a guy on here, Lauren Fjord, who went to London. I think it was either London. Yeah, it was London. And he was in the early parkour scene, knows all the people that are famous, like just bought a one way ticket. Like there's so many cool things going on in, in real life and in the virtual space that, that we don't even know about right now. It drives me nuts. It drives me insane. And like, there's um, there's a uh, web 2.0 uh, that's coming out. I do not know what that is at all. John, maybe you could shed a little I think it's web 3.0. Web 3, but John, yeah, what is yeah, this? Web, web 2.0 was like the internet, like kind of boom from like 2006 to 2012, maybe. Mm-hmm. And web 3 is now the crypto stuff and... Yeah. Uh, I think I think Jack Dorsey said he's going to do Web five or four or something. It's all just bullshit. <laughs> the future, yeah, right, yeah. Who knows? But there, there's, there's, you know, there's a lot of problems. I do, I do think that there's a lot of um, valuable information still on websites. I, I took a swing at a blog, and it's something I need to get back into. I need to get back into writing just because I, I love, I love to write. Um, and I had some people reading, not not nearly as many as I'd want, you know, as a writer, even a podcaster, right? My 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 thought is like, how come I don't have millions of people listening to what I'm? This is a long con. This is something that is going to take a long time to build an audience, and and even though we've been at this for quite some time, we're it's still in its infancy, and it's to have it, mm-hmm. and it's the ability to have the patience to stick with this. Basically, until I die, like there's, I'm never going to give up. I'm just going to keep chatting with interesting, cool people until. And, and if nothing happens, then I've learned a lot from all the guests that we've had on, and I'm a much better person for it. So it's a win-win for me. Exactly. And you said something interesting about. Um, I don't know exactly how you phrased it, but you talked about you don't know what's coming next, and we don't need to know what's coming next. It used to be that I thought, oh, I have to chase whatever the new thing is. I need to have a podcast. I need to have a YouTube channel. And to this day, I have people hounding me to do both. People want me on TikTok. But I've realized, for me, I am a writer. That is how I process my thoughts and feelings. It's what I enjoy doing. I like to write. People enjoy my writing. I am less enthused, much less enthused about all this other stuff. All this other stuff seems like work. Writing to me seems like play. It just seems natural. Oh, really? This other stuff seems like work and I don't want to pursue it. And, you know, if that means my audience is smaller, so be it. I have a devoted audience that wants to read what I write, and I'm very grateful for that. Uh, But even if I didn't, that's another part of my realization going back to the remodeling Get Rich Slowly to be something more like the early days of the web is even if I don't have an audience, even if I'm just writing for myself, there's still value in that. And so what I would do, uh, what I would say to you, Rick, is if you enjoy the podcasting, stick with the podcasting. And sure, dabble with this other stuff, but if it seems like work or you don't get it, 
say, okay, that's fine. I'm going to stick with the podcasting. Oh yeah. hundred percent. hundred percent. I love what, what's kind of your writing process. I'm, I'm curious to know. Well, that's, that's a great question. Uh, first of all, it depends, but generally speaking, what happens is that we can talk, I just wrote an article today, so we can talk about that article. Uh, so as we're recording this, I don't know what your release schedule is, but as we're recording this, it's the middle of June, 2022 mm-hmm. and interest rates have been going up and that means mortgage rates have been going up. And so I got to thinking, I wonder, we just bought our house here in Corvallis, Oregon, uh, last August, and we got a very low interest rate, 2.6%. And I, I got to thinking with the interest rates at 6.2%. What would be the difference if we were to buy the house today as opposed to having bought it in August? And so I whipped up a spreadsheet and then I started just jotting down some notes. I was going to make a Facebook post. Mm -hmm. That's what I was going to do. Well, the 100 word Facebook post turned into 800 words. I'm like, oh, I've got a blog post. (laughs) And so I I just started writing about it. So for me, a lot of my writing comes from my personal experience. I find it very difficult. I'm, I'm not a freelance writer. You can't say, hey, JD, will you write me an article on mortgage rates? That's just not going to work. But if I'm talking about my own life and my experience and what I've learned from it, I could absolutely do that. Or if you and I sit down and have a conversation about your personal finance history or whatever, I can write an article about you and the things that, the challenges you face. I can write an article about that. So for me... My writing is story-based. I look for a germ of an idea. I just dump as much out as possible and uh, try to craft that into something that's uh, entertaining and informative. That's the general approach. There are other times that I do have to take the more freelance approach where I'm like, oh, I'm writing this article and it's going to be tedious. And those articles end up taking weeks instead of hours. Yes. Yeah. My process is, is kind of similar. It's, I used to do this thing when I was on the, the 75 hard. I'd, I'd do a Sunday sermon and kind of break down what I, I saw the, the challenges I had yeah. during the week and stuff. And generally, uh, maybe I start that or maybe I do it the day of, or maybe I start it during the week and keep a, keep a log. But it was, it's, if I had, if I felt inspired going into it or really pumped up or just like my, the biggest challenge was to actually sit down and then I would begin writing and I do not edit anything until I've typed <laughs> things out. I'm just, sometimes it's just a stream stream of consciousness and sometimes I'll like go off on a tangent, but I just want to put as much many words down as I possibly can. And then if it's all trash, I throw it away, but I'll try and save at least something, but it's, it's just a, a word vomit. Cause I, I I've found that if I'm too scared or too apprehensive to 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 write, or, or I start editing things, like oh that needs to go there. This is spelled wrong. Then I might lose that that spark. You know what I mean? That 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 little bit of oh, thing. so I try not to do anything if I'm in the if I'm in that flow state. Just keep writing. And, and I think I 100 percent back that 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 I think it's a great approach, and that is much of what I do too. I've been doing this long enough now that. I know how to edit myself. Usually I know how to edit myself as I go. Um, But what you're doing is exactly how I did it when I started and how I do it often now too. It's just get it out there, worry about the editing later. And, uh, but you know, here's one thing I say, Rick is I often say that writing is only 20% writing 
it's 80% editing. <laughs> and what I mean by that is uh, you, I do the brain dump, like what you're talking about, just get out there. And then that only takes like 20% of the time. The rest of it, like the article I wrote this morning, I, I had it written within 45 minutes, I think. Mm-hmm. The other two or three hours was me just going back over it, over it, over it, moving things around, checking spelling, saying, oh, what kind of images do I want to add? What links do I want to add? Oh, yeah. And so on. That's awesome. That's, that, 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 I'm, it's nice. I don't talk to a lot. I don't talk to no, enough writers on this show. So <laughs> you're kind of inspiring me to get back in it and just maybe it's been, man, it's been like a Do you year. enjoy it? I do enjoy writing. Probably not to that level of writing that I was. I was posting, I was writing every day, I think for 75 or 100 days or whatever. I think I continued nice. afterwards. Nice but work. I really felt good about it. was just kind of. There's something about throwing something into the endless void of the internet that I enjoy. I really do. Like, especially like, this is going to, it's a little bit weird, but like when I die, like all this, this work that, you know, John and I have done through this podcast, that'll be on the internet forever. So my voice will live on, right? Until there's a giant cataclysmic mm-hmm. event that probably takes out the human race. But until, <laughs> until that time, it's good. So it's just, you know, and, and, if one person to if this podcast my words on the you know my website if they're able to change or help one person or even help them open their mind a little bit i'll be happy yeah yeah i'd say 100% just keep writing when you feel the urge and uh, just write for yourself too i mean so I, I use a text editor not not a word processor it's a text editor like you might write code in mm-hmm. um and it's very primitive. And I'll sit down. I would say I'm going over to my text editor now to look what I've got. Uh, so this is a new computer, as I told you guys. And I, since I've got 32 open documents and nearly all of those 32 open documents are just like brain dumps, like you're talking about, that I've done for myself that will never see the light of day. And in fact, I'll end up deleting them a lot of times. Uh, let's see. What, number 23. Here's one that I wrote. I can't even tell what it's about, but it's like, this will probably never be published. It's just something I've written down here. And after three or four months of it being open on my computer, I just close it. And I'm like, okay, it serves its purpose. It allowed me to get my, oh, uh, really? You just, it's you, like a journal for myself. You, so I've got a journal that I have with, uh, two, two of my best buddies. One of them moved across the country and he's like, let's, let's all start writing. And we've written probably, oh boy probably about 1100 pages together through three years of no longer than that. It's probably been like five years. Is this, is this like in Google docs? This is just in Google docs. Yes. Yeah. It's just a Google document that we've just been writing in forever. We write, you know, it's, it's, I definitely write in this saying on a, I would probably say like, four or five times a week. Sometimes it's just a little paragraph. Sometimes it's pages Mm -hmm. and it's just kind of, and it's interesting because you can go back and see yourself change. We have a running document to, to see the improvements we've made in our lives. Like where I was four years ago versus where I am now. It's, it's crazy. We have a written, we have date everything. There's you know, time, not timestamps, but date stamps. So we, you know, and you just can follow it. We filled up, we, we've written so much at the, the Google doc that we had, we couldn't save any more information. So we had to start another one. 
And uh, it's, it's, it's been a wild ride, but I definitely believe in the power of writing. Uh, that's definitely mm-hmm. helped me. And it's, it's a good, it's, it's, it's more of an accountability form, right? Like to, if, if someone in this form, there's, there's three gentlemen and, and I will, and if you want to, if you're listening, you want to try this, you need three people. You can't do it with just two. I've tried it with just two. And then if someone like slacks off, then it's dead. But in my case with three people, there's someone that always holds it down. Even if you get super busy, there's always one person that will start writing. And that person, whether it's me or any of the other to Scott or Andrew, sometimes we'll pick up the phone and call because, hey, man, you haven't been writing. Like, what's going on? How are you? And you, you can tell there's a, there's a recurring theme in this document. If, I, if I'm not writing, then something's going on with me. I'm not happy with how I'm conducting myself or I'm not, you know, I'm not happy of the decisions I've made. And I don't want to write, write, write anything down. When things are going great in my life, I love to write. But when you need to write the most, mm-hmm. that's when you don't. And so sometimes after a phone call from a buddy, I'll go, I'm sorry, like, I've been doing this, this and this. And you're like, oh, man, it's not that bad. I got to write more. I feel better. So I think um, that's, that's, that's a tool that's definitely helped me. And it's a good support group, too. <clears throat> I love this idea. I've, I've never heard of this. It's a completely new idea. And I think it's terrific. And uh, so what kind of things do you guys end up sharing in this journal? Everything. Everything. So we, it, it could be a book, and, essentially. It's essentially a book. Like, but um, it, it, uh, When you write, when each of you is writing, are you writing to the other two people? Are you writing to yourself? Are you writing just – Okay. I, I'm trying to imagine so, how this would work. So – we're we're not we're writing we're kind of just writing it's kind of like a journal it's just like a it's so a, it, it's just to yourself but you have a it, you have two more audience members that yes but sometimes it ends up being you write to the other person you know like you you might you might mm-hmm. have a sense or two like all right like let's say we're we're pretty good avid lifters so we'll talk about like have you been to the gym or i've i've not been going to mm-hmm. the gym or i've did, been doing this and then Oh, I see that you haven't been or you're struggling. Well, here's what's worked for me. So you might be able to pitch some advice to to your buddy, but you always have a running tally of like what's going on with your friends and whether they're on the path. One of the reoccurring themes is like there's this path we've all found that you know when we're eating correctly, we're working out and we're moving forward in life that we tend to be more happy. And when we're not doing mm-hmm. those things, we tend to be depressed. And so if someone's depressed, you know, or, or whatever, um, what I'm a big proponent of doing uh, on this form is when things are going really, really well, I will document every single thing that I'm doing because I, I might lose this groove them on so I can go, I can refer back to when things were going amazing. Be like, Holy shit, this is what I was doing. I was doing this, 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 and this. And when I look mm-hmm. at my life right now, oh, I'm not doing any of those things. So I, I might need to bring I, I need to bring these things back. It's, I think it's it's good to document what's going well in your life as well as what's going, you know, not so good. But I find that um, through the years of doing this, that my failure to document what was going well really ended up hindering me because then you have to kind of relearn some of these lessons. That, uh, and, it, and it could be something super simple, such as like. You know, I, I wake up in the morning and I immediately go on a walk. And ever since I've done that, you know, it, it's just good to write these things down. 
I think you're 100% correct in that it is important to document what works. So I'm struggling right now with my fitness. I'm a fat motherfucker. Let's just be honest. (laughs) Good, man. Ten years ago, ten years ago exactly, I was at my peak fitness. The fittest I had ever been in my life was June 2012. Here we are ten years later, June 2022, and I'm at the worst shape I've ever been in my life. And I know how it all happened. It's, I'm not going to try to make excuses. Um, it's my own choices and beer. Yes. And uh, <laughs> it's, yes. So the I wish I had kept a journal back in 2012, saying, "Oh, here's what I did today." I mean, I have vague memories. I was eating much healthier. I, I was focusing on protein. Uh, I'm addicted to potato chips right now. Let's be honest. Oh, potato chips and beer. They're my best friends. But, you know, that's just going to help you pack on the pounds. And I'm not making it into the gym. I find all sorts of excuses not to make it to the gym. I would love to read a journal from JD, who is 43 years old, and making it to the gym every day and eating right and uh, just get into my own mind. So I guess what you're doing or what you're saying is 100% correct. Document not, not just the stuff that's not going well, but document the stuff that's working. I, I love this concept. Because you can – you really find yourself – so, all right – this is great. We're just turning this into a therapy session. Right on. All right. That's right. So this is this is my favorite thing because I struggle with this. So right now I'm in the midst of a, a of a challenge. I I've found in my life that I love challenges. Um, I've done multiple whole 30, 75 hard, you know, 92 hard, you name it, I've done it. I love these things. That's when I'm my happiest, when I'm chasing something. The other thing that really upsets me when I feel like I'm at my best as I'm not drinking. I mm-hmm. love beer. Mm-hmm. I love drinking. It's one of my, I love it. But for whatever reason, I just feel like it's a giant hindrance in my life. And so what I did this year, uh, as I'm doing like the three, I made this up. It's a three fifty-five. like the, it was a three sixty, but I figured I needed a little bit more leeway because I want to have some some drinks, right? So ten ten times <laughs> ten times a year I'm allowed to drink. Oh, interesting. I'm doing three hundred and fifty five. So I get ten mulligans. Now, yeah, yeah. Now, automatically, the first three four months of this project, I'm not drinking. I'm just not. Mm-hmm. I don't need it. I I I I. It's just not, it's not an option, but as life happens and, you know, certain things happen, there might be times for celebratory drinks. So I'm not completely eliminating alcohol, but I'm, I'm for the most part, because I just, after doing so many, see like the past two years, I think I, I took a total of almost like 200 days off of booze and I felt great. I was in amazing shape. I was running, I was doing all sorts of things and, and then I, kind of got back on the sauce and and the thing about drinking that i found is it's just it's so easy to do hey mm-hmm. my f- buddy let's go meet for a beer oh we're, we're gonna go do this let's let's grab a drink or let's grab a six-pack and you know go let's go up let's go hiking and then we'll get to the top and we'll drink a beer it just really let's go out to eat everything especially in, you know in the pacific northwest beer is very much a part of our culture and i love it absolutely i love it i love all the, all the micro brews the problem is they're just not just they're not healthy they make me fat and the the other thing is, is i honestly do feel like th- it takes 
whether it's self-imposed, I can't decide, but it takes some kind of toll on my mind and it makes me not feel like I'm being my best self. So that's what led to what's led to me being like, all right, 355 days of not, not boozing at all, just to see what it's like. For me, so I I grew up Mormon, Uh, no, no alcohol at all. So um, I didn't have alcohol until I got college. And even then I didn't drink very much. And it wasn't until I was 30 years old that I began to have alcohol on a regular basis, by which maybe I had it 10 times a year. Mm-hmm. But then about a decade ago, when I was at my peak fitness, it, a decade ago, I had not had a single, I, I had never sat down and drank beer because I thought it tasted horrible. Mm-hmm. I would drink mixed drinks and wine. So beer has been my downfall. I learned to drink it about a decade ago and I love the stuff. It's delicious. And, uh, uh, yeah, but what I found, um, is I agree with you, Rick, it's not just the physical effects, which are absolutely there, but it's the mental effects of when I am drinking on a consistent basis, uh, I wake up in the morning and I'm cloudy and muggy and I know that I'm not operating at my peak capacity. And yet I get to the afternoon and I'm like, Oh, I just feel so shitty. I'm just gonna have some more beer. That'll yep. make me feel better. And uh, so uh, we're gonna go all full, full nerd here. Let's go full nerd. Um, in January first, two thousand twenty-one, I realized, you know what? Okay, for, first of all, during COVID, from the end of July two thousand twenty to the end of October, so about four months. Mm-hmm. Oh no, three months. I didn't have a t- drop of alcohol. And I felt amazing. I felt great physically, mentally, emotionally. It was fantastic. Uh, then I made a mistake on Halloween weekend. I was like, I'll have a few drinks. And it was just right down right down the hole where I was drinking too much. And so uh, beginning of January 2021, I decided I was going to document every single time I used alcohol or pot. Because in Oregon, pot is legal. Yeah. And uh so I, I started documenting both of those. And uh, my goal for 2021 was I don't want to change my behavior during the year of 2021. I just want to document everything that I do. Let's be completely honest. And so I have a spreadsheet here nice. that shows every time, every drink, every hit of pot I had. And uh, then I came into 2022 and I said, okay, I have the information for 2021. Now let's try to make some adjustments. Mm-hmm. And I haven't tried to go cold turkey. Instead, what I try to do is just say, okay, can I get down to an average of only one drink a day? So it'd be like 365 drinks. Mm-hmm. Uh, because last year, I can tell you, I in 2021, I had 1,033 drinks. <laughs> I love it. That's an average of almost three per day. And, uh, and so far this year, I'm doing great. And uh, uh, I'm not down at one, but I'm – almost half of what I was drinking last year. So we have very similar minds. This is actually weird. (laughs) I don't think it's very odd to me because I don't think I've met anyone that was as obsessive with tracking your beat. Well, you do know this behavior is fucking everything. It's 100 year. If you can change your behaviors, you can really conquer a lot in your life. Like if you can change your spending behavior, your, your exercise. I mean, my question is to you, 
how serious are you about like wanting to get back into the gym? And and because I'm going to tell you this from personal experience, the hardest thing is just showing up. That's the first, like actually getting, setting foot into a gym after you've been away for a long time. I do not know what it is, but it is so hard to take that initial first step. But it it's so necessary. It's hard. Well, yeah, you can put it, it off. So, That's what scares me the most. Yeah. Is you can put it off for so, a long time. In right around Valentine's Day this year, middle of February, I signed up for the local gym here in Corvallis, mm-hmm. and I went in. I went in four or five times in the first week, and then uh, my cousin, and this is actually how Rick and I met. Uh, my cousin, his health declined sharply. He uh, had cancer, and uh, uh, and so I shifted from focusing on my own health to helping my cousin. And I spent two months with my cousin at the end of his life and uh, didn't go to the gym once during that time. I, I went four or five times then got distracted. Then I came home uh, end of April, beginning of May. And I was at all the positive momentum, all the enthusiasm. I, I haven't, it's been six weeks now since I've, done helping my cousin and I haven't been to the gym once. Mm-hmm. I just keep making excuses. Can you, can you shift your thinking on this a little bit instead of like, I'm going to go and get a full workout. Like I think maybe where you need to begin is just showing up for 15 minutes, doing a half, half ass workout and then leaving and then showing up for 15 minutes again. So then you build the habit of actually showing up to the gym once, because it's, this is a mistake that I've made billions of times and I'll can hopefully, hopefully (laughs) I figured it out. But I, my problem is I go balls deep. Like I go, just, I get obsessed and I go, and I scale, I, I, I start out way too intense when the reality is it's easier to, it's always easy to scale up, but it's, what's not easy is keeping an insane amount of intensity. So start out really right. low intense and then scale your way up to being a psychopath. So like on the three, it's like 500 kettlebell swings in a day. Oh, okay. You have been reading my, <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. That was awesome. Yeah. Definitely do that challenge again. But I'm not, I, but the thing is I'm not in that mindset right now. Like yeah. that Rick, that hardcore, insane workout guy. He's not around right now. This is a very, I'm just beginning this journey of this 355 heart. So I'm, I'm in a very slow scaling up process of like, I'm what I'm really focused on is my diet and, and going Mm -hmm. to jujitsu and then also going to the gym. Now, as time goes on and I start getting a little bit more confidence in all these areas and my body gets used to going in the gym and the, the wear and tear, then I'm going to, I'm definitely going to do that challenge again. And we'll scale up the intensities up, up the intensity of the activities that I do. But right now that guy's dead for all intents, all intents and purposes. He's not right. around for, for the count. But um, yeah, I, <clears throat> this gets into some interesting concepts of like continuity of self, but we won't go there just yet. Uh, but yeah, I, I hear what you're saying. When I look back at, like I said, 10 years ago, I was in the best shape of my life. I was uh, going to a CrossFit gym. Uh, May of 2012, I went every single day that the gym was open. It wasn't open on Sundays, but I went every other So I was going six days a week oh, wow. and I was at peak fitness and I'm a small guy, so I was never lifting as much as the big guys were, but I was lifting the heaviest weights I've ever lifted in my life. And so 
you're right. I need to get over the idea that I'm going to go back to the gym and do that now. What I need to do is just go to the gym, just show up, sit on the recumbent bicycle mm-hmm. with my Kindle or something, pedal for 15 minutes and say, you know what? I made it to the gym. That's it. And I, I know from myself that it will build from there. It's just the, I got to get the momentum going. I got to start. Yes. And the problem is start. Because having a brain, we have very similar brains. Having a brain like art, <laughs> it's not, it's a blessing and a curse because you, you're like, you understand that you are capable of getting back to that position, but it's so easy. And you to, understand that you're making excuses. You, you understand do. that you're the one responsible. Yeah, you, you do. You understand you're making excuses, but you're also like, I'll get back. I know I'll get back. I'm just not going to do it now. And it's totally fine. I'm going to hang out with my friends and then like maybe next week, but you know, and then you'll eventually come to, you'll arrive to a situation where you'll have a come to Jesus talk with yourself. You'll be like, okay, like no mm-hmm. more, no more. I can't, I can't do this. Cause time, time is also something that freaks me out because it, it sneaks up on you. And it really just passes by so quickly. It it's it's actually waiting until you're fifty three years old, and you're like, "Holy shit! Where did what it all happened? Go? Where did it all go? I'm thirty one now. And it feels like it feels like I'm not even that old. So I, I hate. But if you're in your thirties and you say you're old, go fuck yourself. I'm not that old. I'm still <laughs> I'm still very much a young man, but. It doesn't feel that long ago. In ten years, I was twenty-one. Just like that—that that, those days feel like yesterday. And it's like I'm—I'm I'm, you know nine years away from forty. It's terrifying. <laughs> it's terrifying. Yeah. So I, I know it's Rick's mind, but this could very much be JD's mind too, because yeah. it, it does sound like we have similar thought processes. Maybe we overthink things too much. Oh, for most definitely, most. I mean, most of certain things. Uh, when, yes, yeah, I, I definitely. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a thinker. I am. I am definitely. So wait, you you said you were a Mormon. I need to go back to that. Like, how, All right, how did enough. you get out? Well, that's a complicated question. So. Uh, my father grew up Mennonite. Uh, my mother grew up Mormon. And for those who don't know, Mennonite, um, they're not Amish, but Mennonite and Amish are related. So Mennonites would be like cousins of Amish. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're not as anti-technology generally, but, you know, kind of conservative like that. Um, Bonnets. Bonnet and dress wearing yes, people. Exactly. Yeah, no, exactly. but they, they don't ride buggies. They might drive trucks. They don't ride buggies. There we go. That's right. <clears throat> and uh, so uh, my parents met. My father convert, converted to Mormonism, had three kids, grew up. We raised us in the Mormon church. Uh, but they had some real issues with it right about the time I got into high school. And I was struggling too. Um, I, I struggled with some of my faith. So we ended up going back uh, to my father's church, the Mennonite church that he grew up in. And uh, uh, then I went off to college. I, I went off to college. I thought I was going to be a religion major, actually. Mm-hmm. I, I wanted to grow up. I wanted to be a pastor. I, I wanted to preach. Um, but uh, I, I, I am now an agnostic is where I've come to. I, I've gone through all this stuff. And everything I've read, uh, and I still read extensively about religion. It's not like I've just stopped reading about religion, but I extensively read about religion and all sorts of things. And I just can't buy into organized religion right now. And uh, yeah, I didn't mean to take it in that direction, but there we go. I think that's fair. 
organized religion, anything that, you know, people touch kind of turns to trash. And uh, I, my parents are pretty religious. And one of the things I was trying to explain to them at one point, when I was like, I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm definitely agnostic as well, was I was like, it's like we went to a movie and you saw one movie that you loved and I saw a movie and I just didn't like it. Like you loved it, but like no matter what you say to me, like I just don't, I don't get it. I also like my biggest issue is I had the, the tough, I have a tough time buying into heaven for whatever reason that is. I just think the one thing we've always been told is if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. So I have a real tough time with with heaven. I don't even know if the human mind could function without struggle or chaos. Like it's just sold. It's going to be awesome. And I was like, I don't know. I kind of feel like when you die, it's just completely black and you float off into the deep abyss of nothingness. And this whole, the whole notion of God is just an evolutionary trick designed to help you cope with the idea that you, that, that, there is the nothing. Yeah, yeah, that yeah, that, that, that like there's nothing after you die, and that uh, when you are dying, your brain releases DMT, and some person that was able to come back is like, no, oh, I saw the afterlife. But really, it's just your brain shutting down. I don't know. I could go off on this forever, yeah. but yeah, I, I could too. But we, we'll we'll spare your listeners. Exactly. We will. Um, yeah, for me, what, one of the tough things for me is the fact that you know you've got not only do you have hundreds of different religions out there in the world, all of which think they are right, all of which truly believe it. But within each of those religions, you have different sects. So you have different sects of Mormonism, you have different sects of Mennonitism, different sects of Catholicism, and each one of those sects believes they're right. And then within those sects, you have different congregations, and each congregation believes that they're right. Mm -hmm. Within the congregations, you have the members, and each member believes something different from the member sitting next to them, and they each think they're right. Well, who is – they can't all be right. <laughs> I, I think religion religion also a, – a lot of it says the same things. But, I, you know, funny enough, I think that a giant problem that we have today is a lack of religion. I think a lot of people's – I think the oh, gods – I think the that's gods fair. have changed. I think the gods are now politics. I think people put mm. their faith in, in their – like their religion is – is CNN and Fox News and the Republican Party and the Democratic Party. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, uh, I think, or, or their identities or whatever. I think that that's how people get their, you know, religious fix. I think that, because for whatever reason, I think that there is something, something within the human mind that needs a, a higher power or, Something, you know, something, because I I, I found like, again, being agnostic, sometimes if I'm find myself in a tough time or whatever, I feel real, I might say a prayer to whatever. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that helps me. That makes me feel, it's almost like a form of meditation. I very rarely do this. And the last time I did it, I was like, man, I got to do this more often. But saying, you know, just a, a prayer to whatever, hey, whatever's out there, I need some help. That helped me immensely. And I thought that that was really bizarre. Well, I went through a similar experience Uh, once last November. I I had this amazing, probably the best day of my life. And at the end of the day, 
I said what amounted to, I just thanked the universe. I, I just put it out there and it was essentially a prayer is what it was. And it's the same exact thing. Yeah, I th- and I found it helpful too. I think it's important to do those things. I think it's important to worship whatever it is. I think I think that those things are very fundamentally human for whatever reason. So I'm not. I'm definitely not anti-religion in in any case of the word. In fact, there's a part of me that wishes more people were religious. I feel like maybe I don't know. Mm-hmm. That's it's kind of a crazy theory, but uh, I feel like at some point we've. I feel like we're the, our society is more caring than it's ever been, but also more fear, fearful of each other than we ever have. So we have all this care. Well, but, and part of that is the omnipresent news media yeah. in all forms wants to give you only the negative stories. So that's part of it. That's why we're fearful. Yeah, a hundred percent. Which is why I don't watch the news. I, I have no idea what's yeah, going on. Either. I have John for that. That's it. I don't know. He just, <laughs> just tells me all the bad news and some of the good things. I, I, I did want to talk to you. Are you familiar with the Dodd-Frank Act? No. But for real quick, before we get off the religion stuff, yeah. um, I wanted to say that the one thing that I think everyone, regardless of their religion or lack of religion, regardless of their political affiliation, if people would just be kind to each other. Uh, I'm a huge believer in the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And I feel like we've gotten so far away from that. When I was growing up in the Mormon church, we were taught that over and over again in Sunday school. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And then when I went to the Mennonite church, we didn't hear it as often, maybe because I was not as young. But I just feel like so much in our society nowadays, we forget that. And we treat other people, we, we find out so-and-so believes something and we think, oh, they must be a jerk. They must be an asshole because they believe this one thing. We never give people the benefit of the doubt. And I just wish more and more people would be kind to each other. Yeah. Okay. I, I, no, I, and now, now you can ask me this. Is, Dodd-Frank do, Act. do you know about the Dodd-Frank <laughs> Act by chance? Uh, not by name. Okay. So essentially, and John, please, I've, I'm have i 0 for 1 today. Let's hope that I get this. Let's hope I don't butcher this. Essentially, I believe, I, I talked to a, a podcast guest, and essentially this this allows a, the banks to take possession of your money. Uh, so once you, you go deposit, let's say you go to a bank, you make a deposit, they, they take your money, and it's actually – you're transferring ownership, meaning the reason they pass this is they don't want the go- federal government doesn't want to b- bail out banks. I feel like I'm butchering this, John. I need your help. Mm. Uh, and this allows them to not give you your money back if there's a run on banks in the future. So I just wanted that's something I wanted to bring. And how bad? Let me know how bad I, I butchered that, John. I am trying to read on it to get the exact things but you seem about in the ballpark cool so that, so looking at it uh i googled it naturally while you were talking nice and uh i, I see that it came out of the uh, uh great recession and the uh financial crisis of 2008 mm-hmm. um i don't know that seems i I don't think the government would have passed something 
that had that as its intention. It may have been an unintended, unintended. Side I'm pretty effect. sure it was unintended because the majority of it had to do with TARP and the, uh, the loans that were given to all of the companies that went bankrupt right. from overspending and things. And I know that FDIC, the federal deposit insurance, what's the C commission. I, I don't remember what it is. That's, that's, still exists. So your, your money is still protected in the banks. Um, yeah. I, short answer is I don't know anything about the Dodd-Frank Act. Can't comment. Hey, this is a no worry. No worries about that. But that might be something <laughs> that might be something you want to look into. Uh, you definitely yeah, I, I'll, I'll leave it open and I'll read about it. Definitely. Could it also, it. it also had something to do because Glass-Steagall was the act that it replaced and Glass-Steagall was, uh, placing limits on uh, investment banking and personal banking and like the commercialization, consumerization of banking. And uh, part of Dodd-Frank removed that as well. So I believe that was like what you're talking about, Rick, I think was like probably like either the actual reason underneath or just an unintended consequence. Fair enough. Yeah. And and something, Rick, I say that – I often say that I'm an accidental personal finance expert, mm-hmm. which means I have no I have no formal training in accounting. I'm not a certified financial planner. Uh, what I I learned what I learned from the School of Hard Knocks, and I focus very much on the personal and personal finance. So I'm here to help individuals figure out money. I don't pay much attention to uh, the larger political or economic issues. I mean, obviously, I'm going to be be exposed to some of it, and there are a lot of people who would level criticism at me, probably justifi- justifiable criticism, that I need to know this stuff in order to be able to give advice and information. But my response to that always is, there are a lot of people who are already paying attention to the politics and to the economics, and that's not something I'm interested in. There are other people watching that and providing commentary on it. For me, what I want to focus on is helping the individuals say, okay, this is the system here within the system is how we can do the best things with our money. Absolutely. John, go ahead. So uh, another part of Glass-Steagall was establishing the FDIC. Um, Where did I have it? Uh, The best way that I could put it is that, so Glass-Steagall limited the ability for commercial banks that were business lending to be speculative investment banks. And investment Mm. banks were a whole separate category uh, Dodd Frank essentially removed that and commercialized all banks. I have to look into that. I'm not 100%. I'd have to like probably read that again. I need to. I need to read this whole thing. So I just wanted to. <laughs> um, well, we're we're running out of time, but I do want to ask you one thing. For what like, and this is a kind of very broad. What do you think is the most important thing for someone that is? you know, struggling with debt or trying to get ahead? What is one, a few things that you would like to to tell people? I'm going to go with just one because all personal finance, all money management really boils down to one essential fact or skill or equation. And that is your personal wealth. The money you have is the difference between what you earn and what you spend. I know this sounds really basic, but once you understand that this one equation, this one fact is the thing that drives everything about your financial life, if you can accept this, 
and act on this fact that your personal wealth is the difference between what you earn and what you spend. From there, you can make all sorts of changes to your life. Now, when I say the difference between what you earn and what you spend, um, I know there are a lot of people, especially right now, who are struggling as, uh, with both the spending and the earning. Um, and I get that different people are in different circumstances. Different people have been dealt different hands in life. I was raised poor, but poor by the standards of uh, a white guy in rural Oregon, which might be the different, uh, might be very different than, say, a black woman growing up in uh, rural Mississippi. That that's a different kind of poverty, right? And I acknowledge that. So I understand that I've got some privilege. Um, all the same, regardless of what your starting circumstances are, it is up to you to make the most of the hand you've been dealt. So in, if you want to build your personal wealth, you've got two levers you can pull. You can pull the earning lever or you can pull the saving lever. Um, and depending on where you are, you're going to have uh, better results pulling one lever or the other. So let's say you don't make a lot of money. Say you have an income of $20,000 a year or $30,000 a year. Well, there's probably not much you can do to reduce your spending if you're only earning $20,000 a year, right? Because your spending's already very, very low. If you're in that circumstance, you've got to pull that earning lever and figure out some way to increase your earning ability. And that that's going to be different for each individual. A lot of times the correct answer is to seek more education. Studies show that the single greatest factor in determining uh, your earning power is how educated you are. It matters more than race. It matters more than gender. It matters more than anything. It's how educated you are. So if you want to earn more, generally speaking, your best bet is to seek greater education. But there are other things you can do too, like move or uh, uh, switch careers, whatever. On the other hand, if you're, say, a dentist, you're already earning a high income and you're struggling to get by with your high income. Well, obviously, pulling the earning lever, that, that's not going to, you're not going to be able to do that. Or it's not where you need to approach things. You need to take a look at your spending, right? And figure out what you can do to decrease your spending if you've got a high income. The, the key here is the fundamental skill to develop in personal finance is to increase that gap between earning and spending so that it's as wide as possible. And then once you've got that gap increased, take that margin, which is savings essentially, it's just money you put in the bank or invest in the stock market. And uh, the third lever that I, I say there's only two earning and spending, there's also a third and that's the, the return that you earn on your investments. And so, uh, that's it, though. Those are the fundamental skills. And I'm making it sound like super easy and super basic, but that's just to save time. Yep. I've been I've been writing for 16 years on the subject, and there's still more to write about <laughs> just on these three particular things. Increase the gap between earning and spending. Invest it wisely. Absolutely. Well, where, where can people uh, learn more about this? Uh, well, they can come on over to GetRichSlowly.org, not .com. GetRichSlowly.org, uh, where I can't say that I write every day. I can't even say that I write every week. But regularly, I'm writing about topics uh, related to personal finance. And if you've listened to this far into the podcast, you've got a sense of how my mind works. I try to be, I try to approach things from a broad perspective. I try not to be judgmental uh, of anyone. I try to accept 
or look at all political ideas, try not to espouse my own. And I really try to approach money and life from a psychological perspective, just trying to figure out what can I do to help people master the mental game of wealth. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, JD, for coming on the podcast. Thank you. And uh, we'll have you back, man. It was was a pleasure. It was was great talking to you. All right, folks, uh, please give us five stars on uh, iTunes if you think we're worthy. And be sure to like and subscribe below right down there. Helps the show grow. Uh, Thank you so much for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Mm